This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Benjamin Wallen, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. Benjamin writes, Hi, David. Your episode on The Last Jedi was one of my favorites. As someone who went through a Christian missionary college and left disillusioned, your episode affirmed my love for The Last Jedi. Luke's burning of the Jedi text was everything. Also, a guest in a recent episode mentioned about the Jedi's cloaks, which got me thinking that Jedis are not spiritualists, but the most authentic materialists. They recognize material for its true worth, seeing the Force permeating through all matter, not just through carbon life forms. A Jedi understands that not only is life rare in the universe, but also matter itself. Even the process of creating their own lightsaber shows the authentic value they place in materials. Anyway, your podcast is inspirational, and has helped my wife and I start a podcast on black science fiction and fantasy. Please keep inspiring other geeks. So big thanks again to Benjamin Wallen, and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 469 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing season two of the Netflix series Love, Death, and Robots. And we previously reviewed season one back in episode 356, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And this will include spoilers for all of season two, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 31st appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. The Silver Shooter, the latest novel in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Great to be back. The next up, we've got Tom Gerenser, making his 17th appearance on the show. He's the author of the business book Think Like Google and the short story collection Intergalactic Refrigerator Repairmen Seldom Carry Cash. And his popular science book How It's Made, written for the Discovery Channel, will be out in December. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. And also joining us today is Zach Chapman, making his 10th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in Nature, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Steampunk Universe, and Writers of the Future. And he also edited the book Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and Robert Silverberg. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Okay, and so Zach is the only person here who wasn't on our panel for season one. So I'm just curious, Zach, what did you think of season one? Um, from what I recall, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, there are some, it's pretty uneven. Um, but I just, I like the concept of it. I like the idea of just taking as long as you need or as little as you need to make a little anthology short. Um, the ideas can be like really big concept or, you know, just really small concept sci-fi or kind of just horror. Um, and I'm a big Lansdale fan and I remember t- there were two Lansdale stories and they, um, they transitioned, uh, fairly well, uh, into, uh, uh, 
episodes. So, uh, yeah, I just, I didn't care too much for the Scalzi episodes. <laughs> I had a review and I think I was like really harsh on it. I just, uh, humor is subjective. Like it's like the most subjective art form, right? And, uh, that type of humor just, uh, didn't, uh, resonate with me. So, um, but yeah, I, uh, other than that, I just, I really like the concept. Which one was the Scalzi? Was Scalzi the, um, the three robots one? Was that a Scalzi story? There were two. There was also, well, I mean, I'm, I might not be remembering correctly, but I think there were two. There was the, that robots one, and then there was a bad one about time travel and killing Hitler. I, I think, think there might have been three because I think there was. The I yogurt think there might have been too. three too. Was that the? Was the? Was he the yogurt one? The, I I think so. Um, I have to check. Yeah. So three robots definitely was Scalzi. I can look it up. I've got it right here. Um, does like anyone remember what the yogurt one was called? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's called uh, when the yogurt took over. So that's an easy one. It is in fact a Scalzi. And yeah, the Hitler yes. one was definitely his. It's just not, um, I, I'm just, I just don't find it funny. So I, uh, wasn't a fan of those episodes, but yeah. I, I like the more, I, I like the more edgy episodes. Uh, I think the first season, like blur this, the studio, I don't know if blur did all of them this season, but I think there were a couple that blur did last season. They were all like kind of edgy and bloody. And like, I was like, Oh yeah, man, I love that. Yeah, I think maybe I should explain if anyone is listening to this with without listening to our season one episode, which is a big mistake. You should go listen to it. But <laughs> if you didn't, so th- this is an anthology show on Netflix, and uh, it's yeah these short animated uh, films, mostly adapted from existing short stories by you know mostly pretty established fantasy and science fiction and horror authors. Um, and so this should be my favorite show ever, right? Like that's exactly what I've always wanted is a show that just, you take, take the great short stories and just adapt them. And, um, you know, some of them I thought were really good. So like in season one, I really liked the two stories that were the Alistair Reynolds adaptations and then the Peter F. Hamilton adaptation. And, but then I thought there, there were just a lot of them that were just kind of too short or too silly or, um, you know, weren't the best stories or whatever. So like, like Zach saying, it was kind of a mixed bag for me as well. Um, and so, um, so I guess going into season two, I, I, I would say I had kind of, you know, middling expectations, you know, I was, uh, I was sort of expecting more of the same, uh, which is fine. Um, actually after the, our, our season one episode, uh, somebody from Blur reached out to me and asked if I had any suggestions, you know, they had listened to the episode and asked if I had any suggestions. So I sent them some suggestions, but they didn't use any of them, but it was nice just to be asked. Uh, <laughs> I did cool. suggest I did suggest the Paolo Bacigalupi story, and they didn't use the one I suggested, but they used a different <gasps> one. So I, did uh, did you suggest People of Sand and Slag? I did, in fact, suggest People. Oh of Sand and man, Slag. I was going to suggest it. I have it in my notes for this season because you said that Blur before the episode. You said that that Blur listened to it, and I was like, I'm going to recommend People of Sand and Slag. By Paolo Bacigalupi, because it's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. There's always season three, I guess. Um, <laughs> you but, guys, can um, you refresh my memory? Which ones were the blur ones in season one? Does anyone remember? I, I don't remember. Just okay. I, right. I, they have like a distinct visual like look where everything is like kind of ultra realistic. So. Hmm. It, 
That could have been a lot of them, though, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so so those were kind of my expectations going into season two. So how about Tom? What were your expectations going into season two? Uh, I was looking forward to it. I, I had no idea they had another season coming out. When you asked if um, you know we would we would watch these to do the panel, I was excited. And um, but when I you know when I when I kind of sat down to watch them, I was thinking, oh, I, I think I really liked most of them. Even though we had a, I think we had a general consensus that most, a lot of them weren't stories exactly in the first season, but there were some really cool finds in there, particularly, uh, memorable. It's funny, the Scalzi story, uh, Zach, that you mentioned not liking, I, I really liked the humor in that. That really hit well for me. And then the one about the, um, about the, about the robot that started out as a pool cleaning robot and then, you know, became like this famous, um, artist and then went back to being am i talking yeah. about the right series here yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. yeah so that's cmo blue that was I, I mentioned the the two stories by alistair reynolds that was one of the one of the two that yeah that was fantastic so in spite of the fact that there were some that i didn't care about like i think when the yogurt took over i didn't care for so much but you know with an anthology it's kind of a, you know it's kind of like a box of chocolates you never know what you're gonna get so um, I took my Forrest Gump mentality into this one and said, I, I think I'm, I think I'm going to find some stuff here that I'm really going to love. So I, I was kind of excited sitting down watching it. I guess actually, Tom, you mentioned, you know, I guess one of my other suggestions after watching season one was that rather than having 18 episodes, many of them very, very short, I thought that they should just take whatever budget they had and have, you know, like eight episodes that were like 20 to 25 minutes long. And so this is kind of that. I mean, there are only eight episodes in the season and they're, they're not as long as I think they sh- many of them should be, but they're you know they they don't have many super short ones like there were last time. So that is a step in the right direction, uh, in my opinion. Um, yeah, you're you're in charge of this thing, aren't you? <laughs> I I have a descending opinion on that. Um, I I like I think it's really ballsy when you're like I'm gonna make a four minute short and that's an episode and it doesn't need to be more than that. There was one in this season where I was like, wow, this really is. I think the whole episode length is seven minutes. But if you trim off the credits, I I think it's probably only like four minutes. And I think just taking the time to do just what you need and then getting out of there. I think that's like, that's pretty cool. Okay, well, I want to get uh, Aaron in here. So, Aaron, what were your expectations going into season two? Um, it's interesting, you know. I had kind of honestly f- forgotten this show existed. Um, it sort of was relegated to the back of my mind, I think, which is um, not so unusual in my life, except to the extent that actually it turns out I was quite agitated about this show when it first came out. So I, I don't know whether that qualifies as a repressed memory or what, but um, I did something that I that I don't usually do with this show, which is I did go back and listen to our previous season in full. Um, I sometimes do snippets just to sort of refresh my memory, but I, I listened to it in full. Um, and it it's, you know, I think it's fair to say that it, it stirred some some pretty strong emotions in me at times. Um, and, and it was a conversation that generated, um, quite a bit of chat on Twitter afterwards. So, so it's kind of funny to me that I had sort of forgotten it was a thing. Um, and I was reminded sort of in, in a very tangential way or sort of like a random way by, by somebody 
asking if I'd been watching it, um, somebody that I don't usually discuss those sorts of things with. Um, and when I remembered, I guess, wow, this is a long answer. Sorry, Dave. I guess <laughs> my main reaction was apprehension. You know, once I sort of re-uploaded all of that data from from the previous season, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember having some pretty strong reactions um, to individual episodes, but mostly to the editorial approach. And so I was kind of afraid, like, I wanted so much to like season two more, but I was afraid that it was going to be more of the same. So that was kind of my expectation so going in. Because you actually reached out to me and suggested that we talk about season two. So at what point in this process you were describing there? Did you reach out to me? Um, after the, the person I was chatting with was like, are you watching this? And I had a vague memory of us covering it, but I didn't, this was prior to my remembering that, oh yeah, it was that episode, that episode, which, uh, you know, of all the, the, the 31 appearances I've had on this show was the one where after, after we recorded the episode, I felt the most anxiety about what we had just recorded. Um, and so then I realized, you know, you and I had already discussed that we were going to do season two. And I was like, that's a bit what drove me to go back and listen again, to just sort of remind myself where I was at when we discussed this, whatever it was, I think it's almost, is it two full years ago now? It was two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I did need that well, refresher. Well, let's just say, I mean, like, like basically, and this was not just us, this was pretty much pretty broadly expressed in reviews and things was that the show w had sort of like a very male aesthetic and that, uh, that a lot of women um, or just like people who, you know, are concerned about these sorts of issues found kind of alienating, um, you know, like a lot of female nudity, a lot of, you know, violence. Um, and so, so those are the, kind. I just want to, in case anyone didn't, again, didn't listen to our other uh, panel, that's the kind of stuff that, the kind of baggage that, that we all had kind of going into the season. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I guess one thing I wanted to say was that it was kind of funny in our last panel, uh, Tom, you said that you would never like let your wife know that you were watching this show. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was like, they really actually, I thought they really toned. There was like no boobs in season two. It was a really tip free remember. season. That's, that's um, a, right. That's right. Pretty that extraordinary. Was a, that was a that was a big theme in season one, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, a, a motif, you might say. Um, but <laughs> but but so, Tom, did you um, do you feel like would you would you ever let your wife know you watched this season? Because this season seemed pretty tame, aside from some of the violence, I guess. But it seems, um, yeah, like like maybe they at least in that aspect. Um, respond were responding to some of the criticism yeah absolutely i think they did i think they took it to heart now that you say that because i had forgotten um i remember that we had discussed uh um heavy metal and we had we had talked about how it was basically about uh this giant green giant floating uh breasts the whole the <laughs> whole the whole movie is about giant floating breasts and that was kind of how this the first season one of this was it was just it was just lots and lots of nudity and breasts and sex and stuff and uh, it was almost like you could have just called it sex death and robots um yeah. but um but yeah and there were times when i was watching season one where i was like oh i hope my wife doesn't walk in behind me right now she's gonna think i'm watching like cartoon porn or something <laughs> um and but this one no she actually there were a couple times where i was watching it 
and she did walk she did walk in and I was like not bothered at all. I was just like, oh yeah, and I just like paused it and we talked to her for a little bit and then kept watching it. It wasn't like yeah, there was none of that at all. It was it was completely. Uh, I think you're right. I think they probably took that took that criticism to heart, whether that was from listening to the show to this uh, to Geeks Guide or whether it was just from seeing the general reaction on social media. They they steered it in a different direction. Yeah. And then I, I think we have to say that one criticism that they didn't take to heart was that a lot of people noted that the stories, um, that the, the episodes were based on stories written predominantly by men and thought that there should have been more diversity and more, you know, more variety of voices and stuff. And so in, in season two, we get eight more episodes, all, all of which are written by men, um, which is a kind of striking choice given how much how how widely commented this what commented on this was last time around yeah i got to say for me that as much as i appreciated um how much they seem to have taken on board the the comment around around the misogyny of season 1 and and i do want to i do want to use that word quite deliberately because for me it wasn't about and i think for a lot of people it wasn't about boobs per se or sex per se or violence per se it was about uh, sexual violence and gratuitous sex and, you know, adolescent male gaze and all the rest of it. And there, there's an important distinction between those. And I think kudos to them for, at least I hope it's not a coincidence for, for taking that on board and, and really showing with season two that you don't need to do that. But on the flip side, it goes to me to, to, to then have eight episodes that are all written by dudes. And, and I, if I'm not mistaken, all white dudes, it seems to me that goes beyond being tone deaf and almost feels like a deliberate middle finger. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe I'm overreacting, but I, there's just, it, I just don't think you can make that mistake twice and not know it. Yeah. One of the stories was by Joachim Heindermans, who I'm not sure, I don't know anything about that author, but all the rest of the authors are all well-known science fiction authors and are all white men. Um, so yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm not really sure what, what to say about that. I will say, you know, I, I, so I watched all these episodes and then I went and read the stories that they were based on. And then I watched the episodes again and they did, um, a lot of the characters who were white in the stories were made non-white in the adaptations so there's like uh, you know it's not like across the board that you know like like they there, there are like steps steps in some areas where they're you know um you know trying to be a little bit more diverse or a little bit less you know whatever but um uh so it's kind of yeah kind of a mixed bag there yeah um, like do you wonder i mean do you guys know anything about sort of the process by which they assign these episodes to different studios and how they're made. Because I do wonder if one thing that might account for that is if studio X decides they're going to adapt story, a certain story, then, you know, it's their team that starts to make decisions about, for example, do we need to gender swap a character or do we need to bring a little bit more diversity into the characters than were in the original story? Um, often because the story is, is quite old. Um, whereas the overall editorial decision is made by a separate team at Netflix. And once that does, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's actually totally yeah. different sensibilities playing on those two sets of decisions. I personally don't know anything about what was going on behind the scenes. I would actually be really curious to know, but, uh, but I don't, um, I don't know. Uh, Zach, do you have any, anything else to add on that subject? Uh, no, nah, it's, it's just, yeah, I'm in, 
agreement. It's pretty unfortunate. The, the voices that the, the lack of diversity in voices. And I mean, (laughs) it's just, it's, it's kind of surprising. Um, but in contrast to the first season, I do think that these stories are uh, way more, I don't know, they're in general better or like they're more consistent because um, I think that that first season had some pretty uh, low lows. <laughs> um, so and and yeah, and, and now uh, as Aaron was talking and I was thinking back on that first season, I don't remember, I believe it was the second episode, but there was just one that it was just like about violence and against women. That's what it seemed like. I think it was that second episode. And there's nothing like that in this season. And I wouldn't say that there's an episode that I didn't like in this season um, versus there were quite a few that I didn't like in uh, season one. So overall, way more consistent. Agree. Yeah, I, I guess the only thing with that is that I, you know, I asked you guys to rate all the stories, and everyone rated the the John Scalzi story, automated customer service, as their least favorite in this batch, and and otherwise the scores were kind of all over the place, but that that was pretty consistent. So, um, do you want to talk about that for a sec? <laughs> Yeah, she said. Yeah. Lead, she it said sounds, leadingly. It like mm-hmm. I, I well, I do, I do, I do want to speak up for my, just from my own perspective to say that I, I do, I don't want to like. I did rate it last, like everybody else, but that doesn't mean I didn't like it. Um, I, I did like it, and I thought there were some some very funny moments in it. Um, I just didn't like it as well as I liked the others. Um, and I think my primary complaint about automated customer service is I felt like, um. And interestingly, I, apparently I said this quite a bit in my, my, my remarks on season one as well. Um, I just felt like I've seen it a million times before. Um, yeah. that concept is just, I just think it's to me to, to sort of link this to the previous conversation. When you had 18 episodes in season one, of which three are Scalzi stories, it's already a bit odd to me that they would pick up another Scalzi story for this season. Um, just, it seems to me like they're kind of maybe picking their favorites as opposed to going for breadth of covering the genre, which I guess is fair enough. Um, but, you know, of sort of all, of the universe of science fiction stories out there, even humorous science fiction stories, it just struck me as a bit of a head scratcher that they would pick one that is just such well-worn territory, including within this own, like there's another very similar concept, albeit treated completely differently within this one yeah. eight episode arc. Well, let me, uh, let me just set up what the the, the premise is: is that um, a woman has a like a, a house cleaning robot or something, and it starts acting aggressively, and she calls the helpline, and they're spectacularly unhelpful. Um, and and yeah, and, and sort of obviously, like stories about robots attacking people is pretty well worn territory. Uh, as you say, even in humor, I mean, like Douglas Adams made a whole career pretty much out of people arguing with, you know, getting frustrated, arguing with robots. And I mean, there's a bunch of other stories. I, I, could name. I yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised at it too, because I read the story after I watched the episode and it was like, oh, I could barely even finish reading this. And it's like not even the length of a full blog post. Um, 
so I'm, I'm surprised that why and what they chose to do in that subject matter. And then you guys had sent like a couple of stories that are similar, like mutiny. Um, what was that lifeboat? It's called the lifeboat mutiny by Robert Sheckley. Yeah, that, that was pretty funny and like similar in concept. It's oh, and also similar to life hutch, but I just enjoyed reading that one substantially more. So it's like, why not pick something like that? Uh, which is the source material is funnier. And so from there, you know, you could just improve it to me. This, the source material is just uh, from the automated customer service is just not, it's barely even a, th- a thing. It's, it's yeah. a, it's basically like a like a little funny blog post that's pro- I don't know maybe two three hundred words, but yeah, yeah. just a, a head scratcher on why would you choose this? Well, like one of the ones that I suggested was it's called transcript of interaction between astronaut Mike Scudderman and the OnStar hands free AI crash survivor by Grady Hendrix, and it's been a long time since I read that story, but I, I remember it being pretty funny when I read it. So I mean, yeah, there's a lot of even if you were going to go for a humorous thing about robots going crazy and people arguing with them and stuff. It seems like there's a lot of other options you would have had. Um, but I want to get Tom in here because, Tom, this is your whole wheelhouse, right? It is. And, and I didn't have the same experience with as Zach with thinking that the actual source material was bad. I, I enjoyed it. I read it and I thought, oh, okay. See, when I watched the VacuBot um, episode, I was just kind of like, I don't know, the humor is just isn't working for me. And, you know, I, I enjoyed some of the some of the stuff, particularly the idea that the, that that the studio added that was, uh, you know, that everything is going to be done by robots, including like walking your dog, which a lot of people get a dog just so they get exercise. So, but they have a robot walking the dog and they have robots like playing tennis with each other and people are just watching them. And that opening few, few seconds is for me, like the best part of the whole episode. You're totally right. And especially like if any of us have our, uh, of our parents living in those retirement communities in like Arizona or Florida or whatever, you totally see that type of retirement community vibe and how they imagined the AI integrating into that was absolutely for me, the best part of the episode. Yeah. And and I thought that's where the episode was going to go actually. Um, And then I was kind of perplexed by where it did go. I was like, I don't understand this. And then when I read the story, I was like, Oh, now I get it because they wanted to kind of set the scene. But the scene setting to me was like the, like you said, was the funnest part. But I I thought the sort, when I read, read the story, I was like, Oh, this is a fun story. I get it. But I think what I think to me what what went wrong is the the story is radio theater, and radio theater is a very radio comedy is a very uh, I actually had a radio comedy show back at Colby College, and I listened to a lot of you know Firesign Theater, and um, which was a very famous sort of, sort of subversive radio comedy show along the lines of Monty Python I think before Monty Python existed. Um, and it was just some, some like hippies, young hippies from the United States who made this really funny sketch comedy show. It was, it was just absolutely brilliant. But the way that radio theater works and the way most radio theater works is by creating an image in your mind and then suddenly with one line or one sound showing you that that image is wrong. Um, and they couldn't do that because in, in VacuBot, they had to kind of, you know, they were showing you everything as it was happening. So when you heard the voice say the words, you already had the picture in your mind because you were watching it. You already knew what was correct. You already knew the correct picture because they were showing it to you. 
Well, well, there was a thing in, in this in this yeah in this story where I mean I didn't think the source material was that great to start with, but I mean when you put it in animation, like the thing about like why don't you throw your dog so that the Vacubot electrocutes it. Like I, it was just like this isn't funny to me. This is just kind of like horrifying. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think you do have to be careful um, uh, adapting something to a visual medium, and you know some of the stuff that maybe maybe is funny uh, in words, like when it's in pictures. You're like, and especially like even like the the main character, just the visual design of the main character, I found like really off putting. She looks like a weird like <laughs> frog or something, and it was just like it was just like I, I don't know, just nothing in it really was fun to me. It was just kind of weird and and uh, I don't know, whatever. Um. <laughs> But, but I agree. Uh, I agree. I would like to say one more thing about the story, if I could. Um, yeah. I agree with you 100% that there were so many, like the, the Lifeboat Mutiny story. Um, Sheckley has one, probably, well, this isn't too hard of a contest to win, maybe. But, but the way Sheckley does it, he wins it by so much. The, the, the best uh, robot vacuum story in history uh, he has this one called, can you feel anything when I do this? And it's absolutely brilliant. If you ever have time, have you read that one? Has anybody read that one? I, I, I must've read it cause no. I read the collection collection that that's the title story of, but I don't remember it just offhand. So it's this robot that gets delivered to this woman's apartment. And, um, she's like, I didn't order a vacuum cleaner. And she opens up the box and, and she's like, Hmm. And she turns it on. And it, it starts to like talk to her about all the things it can do. And she's like, yeah, but I didn't order you. And it turns out that it had seen her in the department store and it was in love with her. And so it got itself, it like was friends with this like shipping department robot and it got itself mailed to her house. And, um, it starts like, it, it, there's this whole thing where it starts like, you know, talking to her and trying to get her to like it. And she's like, ah, this is weird. And then, it's it starts like trying to erase a stain on her shirt. It makes a stain on her shirt and it says, "Look, I can make this stain go away." And while it's doing that, it starts kind of like giving her a massage and she starts enjoying it. And then she ends up just like getting really angry at it and and basically killing it, like pulling its plug. And um and it's you know the way I'm telling it is horrible, but but the story itself, you read the story, it's so brilliant, it's so funny. And, uh, would make a really good addition to a, to a collection like this. And it, it made me think of it because it's a vacuum cleaner robot. Yeah. Well, well it, it's funny. You, it's funny you say, Tom, that, you know, like the best vac- you know, robot vacuum cleaner story is X, just to give you a, a sense of how not fresh, you know, this, this concept is at this point. But I mean, I, I think for this story to, for, for me, I, I think the story would, what I would want is for it to be like really funny. And or, and or you know have some um you know you know clever way that she survives the robot, and or have some satirical bite to it. Um, and to me, the story had none of the above. But like I was mentioning, this Philip K. Dick story uh, called Nanny, where the premise is that people have these robot nannies, and then the nannies are programmed. The robot nannies are programmed to go out at night and fight each other. And so, <laughs> if you don't have the biggest, best nanny in the neighborhood, your nanny gets smashed up, and you have to replace it. And so, there's this incentive for you to get the most expensive nanny that you possibly can. And it's this so great much sort subtext. of commentary. <laughs> It's this great commentary on. Uh, I don't know if you met, if you noticed, Aaron, but it's this great commentary on consumerism <laughs> and, and everything. And so, um, you know, some, you need to have something, a story like a robot, a muck, robots running a muck story has to have a, like one of those three things, or maybe something else. I'm not thinking of at this point. I think to really 
uh, to I, really uh, hit. I completely agree with you. And like it, when you described that in the email, I was like, I love that. I love that subtext because, um, you know, it is social commentary and it has that satirical bite and automated customer service gestures in that direction, but it never really gets there. And one of the reasons I think the humor falls flat is that it overplays. It's it's way too absurd. So, you know, throwing your dog to to the robot is not funny. It's not funny because, uh, you know, I have any problem seeing um, Pixar pooch get destroyed. It doesn't bother me. It's that it's not close enough to reality to be funny. Whereas, you know, when especially when you're dealing with something like an automated customer service, I, I think you can hew closer to reality and make it funnier for that. Like, like have yeah. prompts that people would actually recognize, but that would just be so frustratingly off the mark when you're about to be murdered. Um, and, and have that satirical bite because it is closer to the reality that we recognize. And I think it just overplays its hand quite consistently throughout like all the interactions with, with the automated service. Yeah. So we're like halfway through this, our time and, and we've only gotten to one uh, episode. <laughs> so we're going to have to like pick up the pace a little bit here. But I did want to transition from that story to um, Aaron. I think you mentioned Life Hutch by Harlan Ellison has mm. an almost identical premise. And I really enjoyed this story because and it, I might just be biased because I read this, you know, when I was a little kid in a Harlan Ellison in the first Harlan Ellison collection that I got. And it always stuck in my mind. And so it was exciting for me to see it. Uh, adapted for TV. Uh, the premise basically is that there's a, a, a fighter pilot in a, you know, war in outer space, and he go- goes into this. It's, it's called a life hutch. It's this sort of like um, escape pod kind of thing that he can survive in until help comes. And the robot is malfunctioning, malfunctioning inside the life hutch, and it attacks any movement. And so he has to use his flashlight. Eventually, he figures. So it attacks him, and he's lying there badly wounded, dying. And he eventually realizes he can use his flashlight to shine a light on the wall and that the robot will smash itself to pieces attacking that. And that's how he gets out of it. So it's this kind of classic science fiction survival uh, puzzle story kind of thing. Um, But I I think I was, yeah, I liked it way more than anyone else. Um, So, um, uh, so Zach, what did you think? Uh, You didn't like the story Uh, or this, you uh, rated the story pretty low. Yeah, I, I rated it low, but I still had a lot of fun with it. It just didn't, um, it's, it's like you said, I mean, it feels like a pretty low concept and tonally it is something that, well, it's, it's like kind of got that darker, edgier tone. And I was surprised, uh, when the credits came on and it, that it said it was Harlan Ellison cause I hadn't read it. Um, and, and it, I think it was like his third published story or something. I think he wrote it when he was 20 or something. So Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, but it kind of reminds me of uh, There Will Come a Soft Rain or There Will yeah. Come Soft Rains where, you know, some someone's like locked inside, which is, again, you know, similar so to Ray, Just let me say it's a Ray, Brad, it's a Ray Bradbury short story. Yeah. There and Will Come which, Soft Rains. I, I mean, that's probably like the... I don't know. I think that's one of the peak of like those robots run amok um, stories or you're trapped in a, in a house or something like that. Um, a, a dog is trapped in a house and it's, it's pretty sad. And I'm not sure I would want to see that uh, adapted by blur just cause it, it's like, it, it'd be too dark for me, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's good. I enjoyed it. Well, you wanted to see people of sand and slag though. Yeah. Um <laughs> good point. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Um, well, how about um, Aaron? What did you think of Life Hutch? Um, I ranked it among the lower ones, but not because I didn't like it. Um, just because I think, and you know, it's an older story, so it's maybe not fair to say, but I just think, again, it's just such overly trodden ground. Um, that being said, I thought it was adapted brilliantly. I thought the visuals were great. I saw, I like felt the fear in, in the protagonist's face. Um, I thought the way they handled his interactions with the robot and his pain when the robot was standing on his hand. Um, I thought it was adapted beautifully, like in terms of, and, and I will admit that I didn't read the, the original story, but um, I, I think that given the what I would consider to be the limitations of the source material, I think they did a really nice job with it. I will say I was a little bit thrown by the design of the robot for two reasons. One, I didn't really see how that design could be useful from a maintenance perspective. And two, what, so as brilliant as the solution is, where I think he essentially figures out that what the what is triggering the targeting is motion. And so he uses his flashlight to create motion. But what he's essentially doing, and maybe this is just the cat owner me, is he's doing the laser pointer trick where you, yes. where you mess with your cat <laughs> against the wall. And the fact that the robot had a fairly feline design, I seriously expected that thing to break into absurd humor at the end where he's just like, wee, I'm playing with my robot cat. <laughs> and, and it kind of ripped me right out of the mood. Um, so that would be my only, you know, note <laughs> in terms of adapting. I guess, I guess one thing I'll say is that this was, I think, maybe the only episode that had a recognizable actor in it. It's Michael B. Jordan. And and you could see I it in his face, not just the voice, too, which I loved. Well, see, I didn't really, because I, I kind of, I'm always, I always like it better in movies if I don't know the actors, because, like, if it's some recognizable actor, it's, I mean, it's, like, obviously I'm used to it, but it's a little harder for me to fall into the reality of the world where it's like, oh, that's Tom Cruise and that's like whoever. And so I feel like as long as they're making it CGI anyway, they should just make him look different. So so we don't, so it's like, oh, that's the guy from Black Panther and so on, right? And mm -hmm. I guess like there's good commercial reasons for them to have a recognizable actor in it. But just from an artistic standpoint, I feel like the fewer recognizable actors, the the, the more I'm able to immerse myself in the story. Um, can I just interject here that I do, speaking of, of going back to process, um, this, this was one of two episodes where I felt, uh, I felt myself really wondering whether they actually had the actors physically act out these scenes before they did them. Because if not, um, they, I mean, just the, the brilliance in terms of the subtleties of the facial expressions. And the other one I'm, I'm talking about, we can discuss it more, is um, Snow in the Desert where not so much on the protagonist, but on the, the female protagonist in that episode and, and Michael B. Jordan in this one, the facial expressions are so subtle and so well done that it was very hard and the blocking that it was very hard for me to imagine that they, how they would conceptualize this without actually having the actor physically perform that. And so it did make me wonder like, did Michael yeah. B. Jordan physically perform this? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I don't. I didn't watch any behind the scenes things, but I'm sure they were in those suits and they had like the camera. You know, they had like little dots on their faces and cameras. You know, on rigs filming their faces as they were acting out the scenes and stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's how how this was done. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I think those um, are both blur. No, no. Uh, so the snow in the desert was unit image. So. But Blur is the one that you tend to, when you look at the the episode, you're like, how did they make their faces do that? 
I think right. that's the that kind of like ultra realistic look where I think the only way they can do that is through mocap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so let's, I guess we can go to snow in the desert next, but for, I want to give Tom a chance. Anything you wanted to say about life fudge? I feel pretty much the same way everybody else did. I, I thought it was, um, you know, I, I think I ranked it lower, but I still enjoyed it. And I really, I kind of liked the, uh, the humor at the end because I instantly pictured a cat. Um, and I thought that was kind of funny, but I, uh, but I thought it was a real, the whole thing was a really fun, tense situation. I thought it was beautifully done. I thought, just the the whole feeling of like being in a space battle that they didn't show you at first and then being on the ground after the crash and like looking up and seeing the space battle you were just part of i i could feel i could this is totally alien emotion right none of us have ever felt that but i could feel that emotion when i saw that and it was it was beautifully done and then the whole just completely tense situation where he's in the life hutch and then the thing smashes his helmet and now he can't leave um and uh and he's got to be there with it and figure out a way. And it's slowly taking taking him apart piece by piece. And he's got to figure out a way to survive. I, I thought that was a really fun, tense situation. Yeah. All right, cool. So let's move on to Snow in the Desert. So this is based on a story, a short story by Neil Asher from his collection, The Gabble and Other Stories. And I actually read this collection and interviewed Neil Asher about it in episode 319. So this is another one where I think I enjoyed this more because I was familiar with the source material. Um, but the premise basically is that there is this albino assassin named Snow, and he has these amazing regenerative abilities. And so a some merchant has put out a bounty for his testicles so that they can study, uh, I don't know, study his testicles and learn how what makes his, his cells so regenerative. And uh, yeah, and there's lots of violence and uh, and, and so on. Uh, so, Zach, what do you think of Snow in the Desert? Oh, well, yeah. I, I mean, I really love this one. Um you said that you'd read this and it was part of a collection. The first vibe that I got from this story was like, oh, this is Elric in space. Like just because he's albino and he's got like some kind of weird, you know, he's kind of super powered in a way. And so I had that Elric idea. And then I was like, well, you know, Elric's just like, you can just pick up and start reading Elric, right? You can pick up any Elric book and you can start reading them. And I was thinking, like, is that the case for this character? Because if it is, I'd be really into this. Um, so, Dave, do you know if did did he ever continue writing this character? I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure that in the book I read, there was only one story about this character. But I don't know. Uh, only, that's that's the only Neil Asher book I've read, and he has like 20 other ones that I haven't read. So I'm not sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I thought this this was a lot of fun and. I would love to be back in this world. Um, it's kind of like more adventure. It, it feels almost more like a, like a sword and sorcery story than it feels like a, like a space opera. Um, at least to me, that that's how I, what I felt about it. But yeah, def, I mean, yeah. It, and it looks so cool that the, the violence is great. Um, and kind of exploring that world and when he he's like on this desert and he goes home, he's been living there for, I'm not sure, like a really like maybe centuries. And so he's got like his his bachelor pad that looks super, <laughs> super dope. Um, yeah, just all around really fun. And I'm, I'm interested yeah. in reading more of that kind of story. 
Yeah, well, let me just say, Zach, I mean, like, yeah, just I think j- just based on watching this, you would think like, oh, yeah, this feels like a Western or like, yeah, like a sword and sorcery story or something. And this this episode, it captures really well the kind of badass gunfight kind of stuff in, in Neil Asher's work. He's also a really serious science fiction, you know, like the science is really good and there's a lot of great worlds building and um, like politics and stuff. And that kind of got left on the cutting room floor um, in this adaptation. So, um you know that's that's just something to 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 be aware of with that one um, thing i i want to say real quick before i forget that like a anthology like you know just like a john joseph adams anthology that you pick up it's it's really great because then this show is like that you see these episodes and then you're like oh i want to go investigate like i want to go now i'm like interested in in reading more um, which is like exactly the kind of thing that I want from an anthology, from an anthology book or now from like an anthology show just like this. Yeah. And I thought that that, that book, The Gabble and Other Stories, I thought was terrific. And so, yeah, I would definitely recommend everyone read it. Um, but so, so Aaron, what'd you think of Snow in the Desert? Yeah, I liked it. Um, I liked it a lot. Um, I, I, I will say that um, I, I'm, pretty uncomfortable with the magical albino trope. Um, just having lived and worked in Africa for so long where, you know, albinism people, people with albinism are still often accused of being witches or cursed or bad luck. And they suffer a lot of discrimination and, and physical violence as a result of it. I find that quite cringy. Um, but, you know, and the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was just, like of is completely different on a completely different note was that the the main character was also kind of the least visually interesting of all of the characters um you know in ter- he was he was the least emotive of all the characters um but so so I struggled a little bit with the protagonist in that sense um but I liked the concept of the story a lot um it's interesting Dave what you say about uh, about there being sort of more politics and world building in in the source material because I guess my other criticism is that um, the the world felt a bit Tatooine derivative for me. Um, You know, that those early scenes felt like they they could have easily been in some of the more recent Star Wars films, um, which is not a bad thing, but it's not terribly original either. And there was a bit of dialogue between Snow and the agent who comes out to talk him back to earth basically i wanted to know more about that i wanted to know more about who she was and where she came from and it made it sound like there was an ai in charge of the intelligence agency um and like there was just like a whole bunch of iceberg beneath that tip that i was curious about that we never really got to hear about well yeah i mean it's actually ai has run the whole human society from what i gathered from that one book and so it's really very similar to ian m banks's culture series except mm-hmm. where Banks is sort of like kind of a Marxist, um, you know, um, Asher is, is much more sort of libertarian. Um, and so it's, it's kind of an, an interesting contrast to, to Banks. Um, but, but this is, yeah, to me, like in the, in the relationship between um, Snow and Herald, particularly this, this really suffered from being cut down to 17 minutes or whatever it was, you know, like this is one that I thought it could have been 20 or 25 minutes and it would only have improved it. Um, cause yeah, a lot of the stuff is just kind of placeholders for, you know, emotions that, that need, that are, you know, could be definitely presented in more depth. Um, 
But so how about Tom? What did you think of uh, Snow in the Desert? Yeah, I loved it too. I, I was thinking if it was a movie, a full-length movie, it would have been one of the cooler science fiction movies I'd ever seen. Um, it was, uh, you know, and I agree with um, Zach that you want to, you want to kind of in an anthology, the kind of feeling you want to walk away with is that you want to go find out more. You want to take these as samples and you want to go explore more. That's how I, that's how I originally, when I was in fourth grade, read The Hobbit is that in school we had um, an anthology that had Riddles in the Dark from The Hobbit as one of the stories. And I was like, what the heck is this? This <laughs> is really cool. Um, and I agree also with Aaron that about the facial expressions in this. I could not stop looking at the, um, the, the, uh, you know, partially robotic, uh, the cyborg protagonist. I, her face just, she had this like resting sense of wonder face. Yes. Um, that she, <laughs> you just kept looking at her and you could feel, you're trying to feel like what she's feeling, that she's just in awe of everything and in, in a fun way. And uh, I really. But you loved also it. get her attraction. Like you, you can see that she's attracted to him right from the beginning. I yes. think that's that's really hard to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, creating that kind of chemistry is hard enough for flesh and blood actors and actresses, let alone this. This that was an astounding yeah, yeah. accomplishment. And um, yeah, the realism I loved. I loved that his you know stuff that he starts out. He goes there's in the opening scene. He goes to this uh, kind of pawnbroker type you know CD alien character to buy you know his stuff and you get the idea it's like some kind of drug or it's something that he needs or and then it turns out to be strawberries <laughs> i thought that was really cool i love the whole mad max vibe to it um i love the character just something about a character who like and granted he's you know he regenerates so it's not that hard for him but something about a character who like loses a hand and just kind of shakes it off is uh yeah is really cool to me um, it was a great moment where there was a shooting star that went over that I thought just, just so many beautiful moments in this one. And I loved his kind of Shangri-La that he had, he had found that he had, he had improved upon. I thought it had, I thought the story had a really interesting dilemma also. And, um, yeah, the, the only thing I wasn't sure about is at the end, it didn't really seem to resolve necessarily. It seemed, it seemed to resolve in a way, but the, the conflict to me, I, I thought the conflict was, is he going to come back with her or isn't he? And, mm. uh, you know, cause she was saying, look, you know, I'm not going to try to kill you or, you know, take your testicles like these other people are, except in a metaphorical sense. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but, you know, she was kind of saying, you know, I, I think you should think about coming back anyway, because you could help a whole lot of people. And he just kind of blows that off. And then they kind of get emotionally involved. And I was thinking at the end that that was going to resolve. And I was, when it kind of faded to white at the end, I was kind of like, wait, what, what, but what's he going to, but so I, it, that doesn't bother me too much. I mean, overall, I was just blown away by this, but that's, that was just like one minor thing at the end that the overall effect at the end, I was kind of left feeling kind of hanging. Yeah. Well, a lot of these episodes, like, I feel like they could have used it at least another minute or two at the end to kind of, you know, have a more slow, emotionally powerful you know, a lot of them, it felt like, yeah, like you're saying, it's just like suddenly the curtains get drawn. You're like, oh, what, what, what? You know, I didn't realize we were we were done quite yet. Um, and so I guess like, yeah, I'll say that in relation to Pop Squad, this is um, an adaptation of a Paolo Bacigupi story where it's in the future and, and Earth is overpopulated. And so they um, they have, you know, teams of policemen who go around killing children because it's illegal to have children because they have these... Uh, immortality rejuvenation treatments and they don't want any more 
they're like, no, there's, we have enough people already. We don't want any more. Um, and so I, I kind of had mixed feelings about this adaptation, but everybody else liked it. So like, yeah, uh, everyone else rated it either their favorite story or second favorite. And I had it as my, my second least favorite. So, um, maybe, uh, I guess, Aaron, why don't you tell me what did you like so much about Pop Squad? You know, Pop Squad is interesting because it's it's very, very dark, um, which is not always my jams. And it's uh, also, I think the central conceit is quite far-fetched. Like, I really have trouble believing that even if we, I don't necessarily have trouble believing in the idea of a human society where they decide that that children are illegal or even need to be euthanized. But I do have a lot of trouble with the sort of, um, idea that it's a bunch of noir detectives and fedoras walking around shooting children in the head as the, as the method of, you know, the, the euthanization of choice. I think that's, that's quite a stretch to the point of being almost ridiculous, but I'm always prepared to go with that kind of stuff. If it works with the overall vibe and if it's justified and if all of the little things in the margins of that are done well. And I think this is a good example of that. Like, you know, Snowpiercer is a good example of one that I think just for me utterly failed where, you know, the central conceit of the train is stupid, but I could go mm. with that if all of these other things kind of made it work for me. And Pop Squad made it work for me for a couple of reasons. And I think the biggest two um, were, were one, I, I liked the thought provoking nature of the concept and how it sort of looks at how selfish our society has become. Um, and, and how sort of how the, the tension that that is inherently posing with a finite number of resources. So I thought it was a thought provoking piece in that sense. It was emotional. Um, it, it was emotional because no one wants to see children get shot. Um, I liked that the protagonist is quietly going through and I'll, and I'll emphasize quietly. And they did a great job of having a lot of conflict with very little dialogue. Like you sense this guy's conflict in a very real way. And it, there's not a ton of dialogue in this episode and it doesn't really need it. They managed to create that mood by, by showing and not telling. Um, and I think that was really effective. And I also thought, you know, it came to a satisfying conclusion for me. So I'm interested, Dave, in your remarks kind of implied you didn't think it came to a satisfying conclusion, but I thought that was as tidy and as an ending as perhaps any of these episodes had. Well, yeah, let me just say, I mean, my, my big problem with this was that I felt like I'd seen this before. I felt like this is basically just Blade Runner with kids instead of replicants. And they had the same aesthetic as Blade Runner, which just made me feel like I just, I already saw Blade Runner. Or like, I don't know if I really need to watch this. And at the end, you know, and just like, and it's also, it's the standard dystopian story, like in Fahrenheit 451 or whatever, where you have like the agent of the dystopia who, you know, realizes that what he's been doing is wrong and joins the resistance. I mean, it's kind mm -hmm. of compressed here, but it's this, this sort of, was, so that was very predictable to me. And, uh, and yeah, just the idea that this guy who for years, apparently his day job has been shooting kids in the head would just kind of like flip after like a 45 second conversation with this mother, you know, like, and this is, and then I went back and read oh, the so short story. That's not I think what I short saw at all. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, let me just, let me just finish. And then I read the short story and, you know, um, I think the short story worked for me really well. And this is to me, it's just another one where like, I think if this were 20 or 25 minutes, uh, it would have been great. And it's just like, it just was like too rushed to me. Um, so, I mean, that's, so that's basically, that was basically my take on it. Um, so Zach, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I um I had read the short story a long time ago and remember uh you know kind of enjoying it and um then I really enjoyed the the episode um for all the reasons that Aaron said and then went back and reread the the story and I kind of I like both endings. I like how the episode ends and you know the sh- this shootout which is like kind of a like Aaron said it's just a it's a very nice bookend to this character. You know this this conflict is is resolved, done. And um in the short story if I'm not mistaken it's like it's there's less resolved, you know. Well, there's no shootout. There's no nothing with the partner at the well, end. He, he just he just bounces, and I think that that's also very interesting. There's uh maybe it's not as satisfying in some ways, but it's it can be pretty interesting. Like, well, what happens? He just left. Like, is he gonna go back and kill them, or is he gonna let you know this continue? You know, in in the episode, it's the you know you see you see the outcome. So, um, I like both of those different endings um, a lot. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's I guess I'll just because I just read the story. I mean, the thing the, there there was a lot more made of the um, you know you could, th- that we're exploring artistic forms that could never exist if we weren't immortal and didn't have no kids to, you know, if we didn't, it, it, you know, you can only with immortality and no kids, could you devote the time it takes to explore these like Empyrean heights of artistic accomplishment. And we would lose that if we weren't shooting kids in the head. And I thought that was kind of an interesting to juxtapose, you know, kids versus art, you know, like actually resonates, you know, I think with a lot of you know, like choices artists have to make in their lives. Was um, just real quick. Was there, I recall, and I could just be making this up that Paolo Bacigalupi was inspired by pre persons by Phil K. Dick. And mm-hmm. which is like this anti-abortion story. And yeah. is that true? Did you cover this before? I, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, the, the pre-persons is a story by Philip K. Dick, yeah, where it's an anti-abortion story. And the premise is that the government has just sort of arbitrarily decided that kids don't become human beings for legal purposes until they're 12 or something. And so they're just these like dog catcher type people who go around rounding up kids and killing them if they catch them out on the streets. Um, so I could, I mean, I could definitely believe that that was the the inspiration for the story, but I, I don't, I don't, I've never re- actually read that. Um, oh, okay. but the other thing I wanted to say about the ending is that in this, I, I found the ending, the, his, um, you know, confrontation with the mother to be a little bit kind of saccharine, a little bit sort of sappy. And in the story, it's really weird and uncomfortable. And he keeps pushing the gun closer to her, like daring her to take it. And like, he gets an erection when he's watching her, um, nurse the baby and stuff like that. And so it's just like, there's just a lot of ooh, like, ooh, that's a lot more like, a lot more like weird layers to the to the story then where, where it felt like this was like really simplified to the effect to the extent that it all almost felt like, like a Pixar movie. Like I think somebody said, and like, and in the, um, in the story, he like shoots the kids like on like quote unquote on camera. And it just like describes, you know, their bodies bouncing around and stuff. And so it's like, they really sanitized it for this, um, for this adaptation. Um, but so Tom, what'd you think of pop squad? 
Yeah, it was, well, like Aaron and Zach, it was my favorite out of the whole series. And I, I really enjoy um, Gritty Noir anyway. I love detective stories. I love uh, especially 1940s type ones. I love, um, you know, the, all the Nero Wolf books by Rex Stout and Chandler second, not not quite as much, but... And then even up into like the Big Lebowski being like a you know a parody of the Big Sleep, where the instead of the the detective being somebody who really cares about things, you have somebody who just doesn't care at all. Um, and so I love that whole aesthetic. And I actually really liked when I first saw it. I really liked the Blade Runner. I was like, oh, it's it's like it's Blade Runner. I mean, it was the same gun. You know, it was the exact same gun from Blade Runner with a little yeah. light on it. Uh, same design of gun. The same car, like the same flying car, the same city, and then and then there was a real Fifth Element vibe too, though as well, um, with the opera singer, and um, but but I, that was kind of drawing me in. I agree. I was kind of at first, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, where's this going? Is this just going to be another Blade Runner? But I thought, see, I thought that the inspiration for this had to have been Blade Runner, and like you said, they just were like, well, instead of retiring, um, you know, instead of retiring the the uh, Replicants. The, the replicants were retiring children, um, which is what, you know, I think that whoever, the studio, when they read the story, they kind of saw it that way in their heads that, oh, it's like Blade Runner for kids. Um, <laughs> not for <laughs> kids. Yeah, maybe not for kids. Maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> but um, but I, I was I was highly disturbed by it. Like, I tried to go back and watch it again. I walked, went back to watch all the episodes again. Um, and I couldn't, when I got to the part where he was about to kill the kids at the beginning, I had to, I had to be like, okay, I'm done. I, I can't watch this part. I had to skip that part. Um, because as a father of, you know, re- kids who were very recently that age, it was really bothering me. And, but I really liked his, his inner dilemma. And I liked the whole idea. Like Aaron said, it's just not plausible. If they have the technology to create, um, you know, a world where they, they're immortal. They have the technology to be like, well, we can also just make it so we can, we don't have kids. They don't have to be like, well, now the, the only solution we have for this is we're going to go around shooting all the kids. Um, that just doesn't seem plausible to me. It seems like there'd be something else they could do there. But, but aside from all those nitpicks, I just felt like it, it just really resonated. I absolutely loved his dilemma. I loved the duel at the end. I thought, I thought it was really cool just for being as quick as it was. Like you could tell it was going to happen and then it happened and it was over. It was so quick and so brutal. I just, I thought this was an out yeah, an absolutely astounding, uh, short. All right, cool. Yeah. And, and I, I think there is something to you say that maybe if you're a parent, it hits you differently than, I mean, I've heard a lot of parents say that, you know, once they have kids, they can't watch stuff, you know, fiction where children are in danger uh, in the same way that they used to. Hmm. Um, but all right, so let's move on to Ice by Rich Larson. So this is set on some, um, you know, frozen colony worlds where there are, it's there's a methane sea and there are giant glowing whales that swim around in the methane sea. And a rite of passage, or I don't know, something kids do for fun on a Friday night is they uh, uh, wait till till a time when the whales are going to break the ice, and then they kind of run away from where the whales are going to be breaching. And so the all the kids on this on this colony are all um, genetically enhanced, uh, and our main character is the only kid in town who's not genetically enhanced, and so he feels really resentful that everyone else is, you know, faster and and healthier and everything than he is. Um, so let's switch it up. So, Tom, what do you think of uh, Ice? I liked it, but not as much as the other ones in the series. I, I definitely had fun watching it. Um, it was one of my 
my least favorite, but it was still good. I I uh, I thought it had really cool artwork. I really thought it was a, a compelling story about the unmodded kid who you know doesn't have uh, doesn't have any all the stuff that his that his little brother has, and um, and then and then I was kind of I thought it was really cool how it turned out that the brother who was modded, you know. I, I just the whole idea that you know his brother who's modded he he ends up being stronger than the brother who's modded and helping him and saving him I was kind of like ah it's kind of cliche but I loved it when it turned around and turned out that I think that the modded brother had faked the whole thing with the broken leg um, just to yeah. kind of make his brother feel better and that his brother didn't mind that it was like oh you know thanks for doing that for me at the end I thought that was kind of cool um, I liked the uh, the the whales I thought were beautiful, the the kind of frost whales. I didn't really understand the whole thing that they were doing where they were, you know, this is why I liked it less than the other ones. The whole thing that they were doing, the idea was that they were on this other planet where there was, uh, you know, a, a frozen sea that they could walk on and there were these giant whales down under there that would come kind of like a sandworm from Dune would kind of come and hit and they would always hit the, the ice like seven times before they broke up through. So the idea was to run ahead of them past these fires that were on the ice, these seven fires, and get in front of the whales, you know, try to stay in front of the whales, which you could only do if you were modified. And um, it was this big adrenaline rush for them. And I kind of was like, why don't they just run to the side? Because if the whales are going to go along those fires, <laughs> they just go the other way. And then, and then I was like, well, because then it's not an adrenaline thing. Like if you do, you know, whitewater or extreme skiing, you wouldn't be like, well, why don't you just stay on the bunny hill? So maybe that, <laughs> maybe that was well, it. Let me just say, because from reading the story, I think it made more sense in the story. Where, from what I, I, I think this is right, that basically the in the story the whales hit seven times in the same place to break the ice, and then they uh, you know pop out and then they breathe, and so you have to get out of that area before they break uh, the ice. And in the show, they changed it so that the whales seem to be like chasing after them and hitting right where they're running which I think was just done to make it look more exciting, but it, it, it was really a little bit confusing and didn't really make a ton of sense then yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, that explains it. Cause I didn't understand like, why are these things chasing them like dune sandworms, but it doesn't make sense. Cause then they just give up and they break through the ice and they're just beautiful. And I didn't understand that whole part, but now that you say that it makes total sense. I, one, one last comment I have on it is the, I always love these little, warning parental warnings at the beginning of these things i love how this one was violence nudity gore and smoking (laughs) yeah i don't remember any nudity at all that's just for the whole series and it's like they're they're kind Uh, of the standard netflix thing now where they always say smoking is always appended at the end and it is pretty funny like super graphic violence also smoking (laughs) I mean, what's going to, what realistically, what's going to kill you though? Well, that's violence or if you start picking up a smoking habit, that's a good point. Like one time I was out in the woods recently with my son and one of his friends and he said, uh, the friend would kept walking out in the woods and I kept saying, Hey, don't do that. You're going to get a tick on you. You're going to get Lyme disease. And he's like, yeah, or we're going to run into Sasquatch. And I said, well, I'd be more worried about the tick. And he looked at me with these big eyes and he goes, I'd be more worried about Sasquatch. <laughs> he's right. I mean, he's right. <laughs> um, okay. Um, but um, getting back to the getting back to the episode, though, um, 
I did. Uh, this is like this must be the same um, studio and or art designer or something as the Zima Blue um, episode because the the characters look the character designs are very similar. And I just it's very similar, I really yeah. like it. I was saying, um, you know, in our last episode that I really like it when there's something distinctive about the art style. So like the ones that look like video game trailers or like whatever um, don't appeal to me as much as ones where like, yeah, it looks like some particular artist um, did this. So I, I really liked that about this. Um, that that studio is Passion Animation Studios, and yes, they did do both of those episodes. It looked the artwork looked a lot like the um, the artwork from one of the uh, uh, the was it the Gorillas videos. That, the, yeah, I think the, it's yeah. the same person. Is is it the same the same studio? I just I only know this because I listened to Zach's uh, One of Us, and they were they were saying in that that it was the same artist or something who did the Gorillas music videos. Oh, I I was just the way it's way more advanced now. Like I went back and watched that video after to see if it was exactly the same, and it's not. That's that video was done so long ago. It was for the song nineteen dash two thousand, and it's obviously come a long way, but you can tell just something about the eyes and the way the jaws look and everything. It really reminded me of that. I, I, uh, with this episode, I had a preference for this over the story, over the short story, because the, where this ends, like it ends as soon as the brother who's the not, souped brother he's like the regular brother notices that you know his uh souped up brother stops limping and so you get the implication and it's got like it has this kind of wholesome ending it feels it feels like it could be like this wholesome thing and that you know it's like this brotherly um competition is kind of like oh you know he he got him and now, you know, only good things are going to happen because now he's like integrated into the fold into these, you know, because he he's seen as like being the hero of of the scene. Um, but in the short story, it's like it doesn't end there. It just keeps going and it becomes like you know, they have an argument about it. And I was like, <laughs> like man, that sucks. Yeah, like, so it has a real downer ending, the, the original story. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, like, I kind of. No, I, I actually, I think they improved the story in a couple of ways. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that, like I said, making the, the whale breaking the ice thing was way more confusing in this than in the story. But I liked the fact it made a lot more sense to me that in the story, it's the older brother has made these friends and then the younger brothers tagging along with them. And this made a lot more sense where the younger brother has the friends and then the older brother, the unmodded one, is tagging along with them. That just seems like it just made a lot more sense to me that way. Um, yeah. But, so. but visually, I think that just the ice sea worms or whales, um, it's just it looks really cool. Them running, you know, and and them being chased. So I understand why they did that. I know narratively it makes it makes very little sense, but I don't see how like visually it would look cool that, you know, they got to move out of the way of for it to break the the ice once. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cuz now you get like you get to see it multiple times popping out of the water and then you get the big old chase and uh 
you know, you get the aesthetic, which is love, death, and aesthetic, which is like kind <laughs> of the show. Uh, I want to get Aaron back in here. Aaron, any any other thoughts here? No, I think it's pretty much been covered. I mean, I ranked this one pretty high. I probably ranked it higher than I actually feel, but um, I mostly ranked it that way because of the visuals. I just, you know, there there isn't much going on in the story. Um, there isn't much meat there, um, but that's okay. And and the, the animation style was was very very different from the others. And I just the the sequence where the whales are are bursting through the ice is just so beautiful to look at that I just I just enjoyed it. All right, cool. So we got three more stories to cover, and we're pretty much out of time. So let's uh, get through these as quickly as we can. Um, I really liked All Through the House. This is the, a story where some kids go to look at Santa Claus, and Santa Claus turns out to be this monster who who says who sort of sniffs both of them and says, oh, you've been good, and gives them presents. And it's, it's just really creepy and weird. And it's only like three minutes long or something. But uh, I thought it was a perfect... This is one where I didn't feel like it was too short. I felt like it was exactly you know, like three minutes was exactly the right length for the story. And actually, um, this is the one that I showed to my girlfriend, Steph. I was like, I got to see this. This is pretty crazy. And I felt like this is one like a good one. If you if you have someone who you're trying to interest in the show who's not that into science fiction, this is like a, a good quick one that, you know, they could kind of be like, oh, this seems interesting. Um, but um, let's see. I feel like some people didn't like this. Let's see. All through the house. Uh, Tom didn't like that. Surprises me, Tom. This seems like it, this would be your sort of thing, but you rated this one pretty low. It's not that I didn't like it; I just liked the other ones better. And I, I thought it was really cool. It was a really cool, eerie moment um, where you know you had these little kids, and I, I especially liked the part he, they like when he would like disgorge these presents out of his out of his like gullet and uh, and hand them to the kids, dripping in slime. And I think I've got that right. But anyway, the the kid yeah, the yeah. kid would like open it up and be like, It's just what I wanted. <laughs> like, but, not, <laughs> but not like in an excited Christmas morning way, just in like a stunned, like horrified way. Like it's just what I wanted. Um I like that. I guess I just I was just kinda like interested watching it, but it was also creepy and I and I think I'm running into again the problem of uh I've got two kids who are that age. So it bothered me seeing that, you know, watching that and seeing how close they were to being like, you know, what would have happened if we, at the end, the kid says, what would have happened if we were naughty? Um, that, that just kind of was, I don't know, made it a little harder for me to enjoy maybe, but, um, but I did still enjoy it. It's not that I didn't like it. I just rated it behind the ones that I liked better. Okay, cool. And, and when the Santa Claus monster goes scuttling up the chimney, you're kind of like, oh, that kind of makes sense that... Something that comes down the chimney and goes up the chimney would be some sort of weird, you know, spider-like monster or something. Right. Um, Zach, what'd you think of All Through the House? Uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned this or not, but it appears to be stop motion. Um, I- I'm not sure if it actually is stop motion, but visually it looks really cool. Um, and when it, it regurgitates the uh, the packages, like it, I think it was explained, like, it's it's covered in slime, but the way you see it, it's almost like... Uh, I don't know, like hot glue gun. Like I don't know how they did that effect, but yeah, it's just visually, it's really fun to look at. And it's a very simple story. I mean, it's it's three minutes long. We've talked more about it than <laughs> you know, how, how long it is. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I definitely would want to see them in the next season do like another Christmas one. You know? I actually... That's interesting. I didn't even notice it was stuck. I, I, now that I think about it, like when the tongue like sucks up the milk, 
that seems sort of stop motion-y to me, but I didn't really notice that. But there is this whole tradition of like stop action Christmas things. So it's kind of interesting if that's what they did, that that it kind of fits into that tradition. Uh, Aaron, thoughts on All Through the House? I loved it. That's that's my humor all day long. It, it just, it's, it's so like dark and surprising and ironic. And I, I mean, the disgorging of the presence, like the overwhelming image I had in my head, it kind of looks like he's taking a slow shit backwards, like <laughs> just pushing these presents out covered in goo. And it's just, it's so, and the look on the kids' faces and I just, yeah. uh, it was great. And, and yes, the, that stop motion sort of send up of your Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer type things. And it starts out, you swear to God, you're watching a tender Pixar movie. And it's just, <laughs> uh, I love, just loved it. <laughs> oh, one, one small thing I wanted to point out here. The monster design is really cool. Um, it has like hands coming out of its, the sides of its mouth. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just so tired of all wiggly creepy monsters looking the same like some jj abrams dumb looking monster and so this was a really cool design and i'm be i would love to see whoever designed that make a career it was kind of like a guillermo del toro uh monster yeah yeah it it reminded me of the one of the creatures in pan's labyrinth yep yeah the one with the hands and the eyes that i can't remember what it looked like exactly but yeah yeah, yeah. Well, it had um, eyeballs on the palms of its hands, That's and right. so it holds its eye. It holds its hands up in front of its face and kind of like looks out through its hands. It, it kind of reminded me of the Nightmare Before Christmas sequence, where the where yeah. the, the the Jack skeleton decides he wants to play Santa, and he just yeah. freaks all the children <laughs> yeah. out horribly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good observation. Uh, okay, Tall Grass by Joe Lansdale. So there's a I don't know. It's like in the um, 19th century, it seems like maybe. Um, but anyway, this train stops uh, in the middle of a field and mysterious sort of stops for no really clear reason. And then there's like these weird glowing lights out in, out in the corn. And one of the passengers decides to go investigate despite being warned not to and gets chased around by, I don't know, kind of like whitish you know, monsters. And then before making it back to the train. Um, and yeah, it's based on a story by Joe Lansdale, which I couldn't find any way to read. So I don't know what the actual story uh, is like, but, um, I know Zach, I know you're a big Joe Lansdale fan. What'd you think of? Talk yeah, I, I, uh, unfortunately I haven't read that story either. Um, and I've read a good deal of Lansdale, but it just felt so much like something he would write. So, um, uh, I really resonated with it. It's, it's very simple. It's, I'm sure that short story is probably only like four or five pages. Um, cause he, he is really good at writing, you know, 2000 word short story that like kills it. Um, this was one of those for me where you don't, you get a good sense of place and you get a good sense of like mood um, and tone, not so much on like theme or character or plot. Um, and I'm fine with that. You know, I visually, it looks cool. We get, we get our monsters, we get our scares, you know? Um, and then we're gone and then, you know, we're off to the next thing. So yeah, it's probably now that I think it's probably more like the 1920s or something. It's some, it's sometime around then anyway. Um, so Aaron, what'd you think of the tall grass? 
Um, I loved the tall grass. It could be torn straight from the pages of my Rose Gallagher series. Um, <laughs> and I, I definitely think you were right the first time. I would put this just based on the hairstyles and the fashions, 1880s, 1890s. That's just a guess. Um, but I loved the art style. This is another one where, as Zach says, there's not a huge amount of story here. Um, but the story that there is is satisfying. I like the idea of this kind of, um, particularly like if you can sort of put yourself in the place of the protagonist, who's this, he appears to be a businessman of some kind. Maybe he's a lawyer or an accountant or something like this buttoned up guy with spectacles. And he's on his, on the steam train and they're going across the great plains and it, he's holding a paper that suggests he's on the, the Western express. And you, you have to try to imagine at this point in history, the East is just like this checkerboard of tons of, of trains and industrial activity. And then you hit the great plains and it's nothing, nothing, nothing for days on end, just flat. And so the idea that there's this kind of Bermuda triangle thing going on in the middle of those great plains in those cornfields is, is kind of amazing. I guess if there's cornfields, it suggests maybe they're a little more settled than, um, than they would have been in the eighties and nineties. But anyway, so, but the visual style that sort of um, almost oil painted kind of style to it. Um, I, but I just, I really loved the visual style. And I also liked the, the sort of the period setting. I, I would like to see more science fiction set in the past rather than in the future as just like a general rule. Yeah, I guess part of the reason I think it's maybe 1920s is just because the the main character, he looks to a lot to me like Lovecraft, like just his facial mm. structure. And since it's kind mm. of a Lovecraftian story, I, I, I was wondering if that was, um, you know, intentional. Um, but I mean, I honestly, I thought the story was a little underdeveloped. I mean, like, I always hate it in horror stories when characters do things that are dumb. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and when the, you know, the, um, the, uh, what do you call it? Conductor, you know, he's like, don't go into the grass. And the guy's like, okay. And then he immediately goes into the grass. Yeah. Like, it's like stupid that he does that. And it's also like stupid that the conductor who apparently knows there's monsters working around doesn't, isn't more <laughs> doesn't emphatic about. I, I yeah. completely agree. I completely agree. That, that really bothered me. I love this. That was maybe like a Robert McKee moment where it was like, well, you, there might be a problem with the thing, but if you can still get on board, pun intended, then you're fine. <laughs> and that, and I still got on board. I really enjoyed the story, but I, did totally agree that was a, something that I had to just kind of be like, all right, never mind. But but I was I was really bothered by the fact that the conductor just you know they went into the grass number one, but number two that more so that the conductor was just like, yeah, you know, don't go into that grass and then walks on the train instead of saying there are these bloodthirsty, scary like <laughs> creatures in the tall grass that will like kill you and you'll become one of them and like. You'll be stuck here forever and like, oh, okay. Well, in that case, I'm getting back yeah. on the train. Or, or like, even if he didn't want to say that, he could just say like, sir, you have to get back on the train. It's the rules. No arguing. Get back on the train right now. I won't exactly. take no for, you know. Yeah. Exactly. And so can I just say something about that? Because it's funny, you know, it, it would have bothered me except, okay, so here's why it didn't bother me. Because I was kind of tricked. The whole time I assumed the conductor was in on it and it was going to turn into some sort of Faustian bargain where in order for the train to pass mm. safely over this ex hmm. this particular, you have to pay a toll. And the toll is one dumb fuck Easterner who you let wander <laughs> off and have a smoke and we get to eat him and then the train gets to safely pass. And so I really was surprised when he was saved by the conductor. And then I was like, okay, but wait, there's still going to be a twist. And I was waiting for that twist never to arrive. And so by the time you know, by the time I got to the point where I was like, wait, why didn't the conductor say something? The show was over and I had already enjoyed it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I was waiting for a blow that never landed. 
So I'm just curious what's what happens in the story, but I, I feel like at minimum for me, the story needs some like reason grounded in character for him to go into the grass um, that somehow, even if it's short, that somehow, you know, is, is, is affected by his, his trip into the grass. So like, you know, like what is, cause it just seems like this, he's just see the light and he's like, I wonder what that, like, it, it, I don't know. It seems like he should see like somebody he knows or like, you know, somebody who's dead or like, I don't know. There just needs to be something like mm. related to what's going on. Man, you in, should, you should write these his... things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like Aaron's idea. I don't think he needs a reason, but I do think you need to see a little bit, maybe a little bit more conflict about him doing it. You know, like I think if you put yourself in his shoes in, in real life, would it be all of that, all that easy for you to resist the temptation? First of all, you're not going to be, you're a reasonable, yes. you're a buttoned yes. up Easterner Aaron, and you I never, don't, I never go anywhere. You I don't <laughs> believe in aliens. You don't believe in monsters. You don't believe in all this kind of stuff. So you're, you're curious, like what manner of new electric farm implement is this? Like you really don't think you're at risk, right? And then by the time you start to feel train. creepy, Oh, man. <laughs> not me. I would totally be, but I would think about it there. I would be pausing and looking back at the train a little bit more than he did and thinking this is probably really stupid, but I, I, I have to tell you, I do. I've, you know, I've traveled all over the world. I do like class five whitewater. I, I hike giant mountains. I ski really steep stuff. I, I love adrenaline. I would be underneath one of those benches. There's just something about the unknown, like a train where somebody says, don't, the train's going to leave. You don't want to go out there. And I see something weird in the grass. My first thought is that looks really weird. I think I'll go back on the train. <laughs> well, I've, I, mean, I thought it was like this, this sirens call. Yeah. That was like pulling him out there. And I, and I thought for before the reveals, like, Oh, it's going to be like, this is going to be, a siren type story. And then it's like Lansdale's like, nah, bitch, this is crazy zombies, <laughs> which is what he does. Like, he's like, Oh yeah, we're going to do like this kind of literary thing. And it's like, Oh nah, some dude got bitten in half, by, <laughs> like a, a space, whatever. <laughs> awesome. But, but yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was cool, but it needed something, something else. Yeah. Some twist or, character choice or, or something. Um, but let's, uh, let's get on to our last story. Uh, the drowned giant. This is based on a story by JG Ballard. And so it's basically just, you know, this giant body washes up on the beach and, uh, and the townspeople, um, at first are kind of like amazed by it. And then as time goes by, they start writing graffiti on it and chopping off pieces of it. And, and the main character is sort of a more sensitive soul who, uh, uh, really finds the, the giant, meaningful and, and is sort of uh annoyed by how um you know how flippantly everybody else in town kind of uh reacts and uh, and that's pretty much the story uh so aaron what'd you think of the drowned giant i liked it um i liked the overall concept of it uh, which i think you know th there's a there's a lot of meat sort of under the surface of that very simple story um in terms of a commentary on how you know we can have something very magical right in front of us, but we can only see that magic for a few seconds. And then all the prosaic starts to sort of corrode it until, until it's, you know, something that we don't see the magic in anymore. Like, like our own planet, for example, we don't see the beauty. We don't have awe and wonder. We just see it as something mm. that we can use and abuse. And so I, I liked all that aspect of it. I will say that I found the prose 
a bit purple in places. And I almost wish, and I know this would have been a huge challenge, but I almost wish there had been little to no dialogue in this episode. And we just, because I think there was so, the visuals were so powerful in and of themselves. You almost didn't need this kind of, for me, overwrought reflection of the scientist, because it's done in a kind of a diary style narration. And that, for me, almost detracted from it. And, and that was my main criticism of it. I, I think it was heavy handed and it actually needed to trust its concept more because I think there was enough there in that concept and in those visual, visuals that it didn't need that narration. It, they were showing so much they didn't need to tell. Okay, that's interesting because I had exactly the opposite reaction <laughs> where I felt like, you know, like so many of these things, they kind of feel like somebody's animation reel or, you know, like video game trailers or something. And I thought that by actually incorporating the text of the story into the um, into the adaptation that it made it, it just gave it much more of a yeah like artistic literary quality. Um, and if you think that this is purple, the the actual story is way more purple. Like they chose like the la- you know um, the least um, kind of uh, yeah like purple or kind of overwrought uh, sections of it to to put in. Um, but um, I don't know. I just thought it it was really beautiful. And um, yeah, I, I just I would just you know, since I like the short stories so much that these are based on just to hear the actual words of, of one of the stories, I thought was a really good choice. Um, but uh, I don't know, Zach, where do you come down on this? Um, one thing. Well, one this this was my favorite story um, of the batch of um, this season. Uh, one thing that the short story does pretty well that this didn't visually, it didn't capture is that the first page it's downplayed. Like the giant is seen from afar. And so there's like kind of, uh, like some distance distortion. And so you don't really realize how giant the giant is until like, you're like it well into the story. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's, he's that giant. Whoa. There's kids walking on him. Like it's at first it's like, oh yeah, he's like the size of a shark. It's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I was actually kind of far away looking at that. Now that I see someone in scale standing next to his foot, he's enormous, which is something I feel like would be very difficult visually to do. But yeah, I mean, visually it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, And then, just that the literary it was interesting that what Aaron was taking away is like what we were the the human interaction you know when this big magical thing happens i was I was looking at it more on like what what it identity like what it means to to die and to lose your identity and to become uh to deteriorate like all of those things, like all of the natural uh, scientific happenings of after death is, is happening to this uh, corpse um, and in a normal kind of in a normal way. Right. It's it's very realistic. And at first, the narration um, I get they're They're so similar, the story and the um, the episode. So I might be mixing some up. but. Um, you know, there's a lot more on the identity of who this 
giant might have been or, you know, what the personality was. He, he He's like guessing at, oh, he, his temperament was mild and, you know, his his features are handsome, something like that to, at the start. And then midway through, he's he's like this aged, you know, decomposed. And I don't know, it's it's powerful to the examining the the way the body degrades and then you know at the at the very end like people don't even remember like they're just like oh yeah that was a whale like they see these massive um bones in on the beach and they're like oh yeah it was just some beached whale you know like it, you know that oh yeah yeah we don't we don't remember who we are in you know t- 10 15 years after we've died i don't know it's that that's kind of what i what, what i was going through when i was reading and watching and i i think it's just really yeah. powerful yeah, well, th- yeah, just this idea that no matter how amazing something is, it all just fades. Yeah, it's all dust. Eventually. It's all it's all just turns to bone and the bone to sand, and then eventually there's not even going to be that. Which, yeah, that's powerful yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, Tom, what'd you think of the Drowned Giant? I liked it. It wasn't my favorite, but um, the more I'm hearing everybody talk about it, the more I'm thinking this is probably going to be one of those ones that like the, um, like the pool robot story will, is a, is going to wind up being a classic from this, uh, anthology in the way that one of my teachers in college once told me a classic is any story that grows in your mind after you read it. And I think this one is obviously many things to many people. I mean, Aaron has this brilliant eco angle on it that we're, you know, it's like how we treat the earth. It's this beautiful, amazing treasure that we just kind of, treat like garbage like in a way that reminds me of uh, a Douglas Adams line where he's talking about these Vogons are such horrible creatures that their their planet produces these beautiful scintillating jeweled scuttling crabs that they smash with mallets and they don't eat them they just smash them because they like to do that <laughs> and then instead of that eco angle Zach said you know no I, I see it as this is what happens in death you just lose every part of what you were until you become part of the environment and it's kind of a cool classic in that way that it can be all things to all people. And I, I like the, um, I like the, it really reminded me of, uh, magic realism, like the story of very old man with enormous wings. That's where... exactly what my wife said. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that's okay. exactly what okay. she said. No kidding. Well, it's, it is that same kind of thing where the, um, you know, you've got this bizarre thing that shows up in the middle of a normal town and everybody just kind of reacts to it how they react to it. Um, and I also, I, I have a couple other comments about it. I thought the artwork was amazing. I thought, you know, the, when I first saw the first few shots, I was like, wow, we are really coming up out of the uncanny valley. Um, where, you know, things look, things that look kind of human, but not really just are off-putting. I thought this, this looks almost real. A lot of this stuff looks almost real to me. I also thought the corpse looked like Andy Samberg. Yeah. 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 I don't know if that was intentional or if that was like <laughs> it seems like a weird joke to throw in there but um I loved all well, the little especially when it's like he's he's so noble looking, you know, and then it's like Andy Samberg. <laughs> it's Andy yeah. Samberg. Yeah. I loved all the uh, Yeah, that's a good point, Dave. I loved all the little touches like the tide pool in his palm. Um I yeah, loved, yeah. I loved that too, yeah. The the little kids sledding down his sternum. <laughs> the uh the locals doing graffiti on the side of him, um, which, you and, know, and also let me just say that the girl sitting in his ear on her phone, you know, so there's like this giant and she's just <laughs> like not even paying attention to the giant right. she's just on her phone. 
Right, which speaks to Aaron's point about how, like, we react to these beautiful things by just in this blasé way. Um, total lack of sense of wonder. Um, and then I like, I like little de- so many cool little details. Like there was a, a Cetacea Colossus poster of a white whale in, uh, in one of the buildings. It was a, it was a great little Moby Dick ref- reference there, which I thought this had some Moby Dick connections, the story, obviously. And it also had some Gulliver's Travels being older. I grew yeah. up, I grew up watching and reading that. There was a, there was a movie in the seventies that, or sixties that I watched over and over again, um, around Thanksgiving time for some weird if- reason. If you've read that or watched that, you can't see that visual and not immediately think of Gulliver's Travels, right? Right, right. What this made me think of is, you know, one of my favorite novels is by James Morrow, and it's called Towing Jehovah. And the the premise is that God dies and his giant naked body just falls out of the sky and lands in the ocean and is just floating there in the ocean. And the um, the angels who are now kind of dying and disintegrating because God is dead, they come to this a disgraced captain who was responsible for an Exxon Valdez style um, oil spill and tell him that they're going to hire him to tow God's body to the North Pole where it will be entombed. So uh, if you liked this, you know, that takes this, a pretty similar premise and, and just like, you know, spins it out into a whole like great satirical novel. Yeah, I thought um, of that too, Dave. Yeah. Um. All right, but we are we are way way out of time here, so I think we need to start wrapping this up. So, um, so Zach, final thoughts? Any final thoughts on season two of Love, Death, and Robots? Um, for season three, let's get some more diverse voices. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'm very enjoyable. Uh, highly recommend. Uh, Aaron, final thoughts. Yeah, agree. Season season two is a huge level up over season one. I really appreciated the emphasis on having a lot more soft sci-fi in there, a lot more sort of philosophical, sociological, thoughtful pieces, as opposed to just only having a lot of pew-pew lasers in space, which I love, but enough's enough. So, you know, I like I liked the balance a lot better. Um, but yeah, just to echo what Zach said, um, no excuses on the lack of diversity in voices. There is a ton of, including classic science fiction written by women and people of color that that need to be part of the mix here. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually thought that I didn't think any of these episodes, I didn't like them as much as Zima Blue. Um, but um, some of the, you know, like, like I said, the ones I liked the most from season one were Zima Blue, Beyond the Aquila Rift and Sunny's Edge. And I think some of the better ones from this were kind of on the level of, for me of, of, of those last two. So like my favorites were like the Drowned Giant, and life hutch and ice um but yeah i mean i thought this season was was way more consistent um you know like i said there weren't just a million uh ones where you're kind of the kind of felt pretty forgettable and kind of like filler um and and i and i felt like the um you know the stories were all you know with that one exception by by sort of big name recognizable authors and i liked that so, yeah, I think if they just I mean, it's it's sort of like a lot of the things are going in the right direction. And, yeah, if they just, you know, had a little bit more variety, a little bit more diversity, uh, you know, more different voices. Um, the show is really, you know, like I said, it's the kind of show I really want to watch. So, yeah, I know, I know there is going to be a season three and uh, I hope we'll see what happens with that. Um, and, um, you know, definitely I hope there are more seasons after that. And sorry, can I just add one more thing? I think yeah. they proved quite convincingly that you don't need tits and sexual violence to 
have good science fiction. Um, I'm not sure yeah. who needed to have that proven, but in case you needed to have that proven, <laughs> this season does that admirably. Yeah, yeah, that that season one was real. I mean, this started, I, we talked about this last time, but this, this show started as kind of like an attempt to reboot heavy metal. So it did have that kind of aesthetic. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't mind that especially, but I definitely would like uh, the show or a show to have more of the aesthetic of like just representing what's been going on in fantasy and science fiction short stories, you know, in the last you know few decades or whatever, you know, I mean, that's, that's what there's not enough of um, on television as far as I'm concerned. Um, but so Tom, final thought, final thought on what do you think about season two? I agree. It's a big step up. I loved seeing some of the stories given a little bit more breathing room. And I agree with you, Dave, that that could happen maybe even more. Um, I agree that there should be some more diverse voices in there as well. And, uh, you know, I really would, would love to see is despite the fact that this wouldn't be a diverse voice, I really would love to see them, uh, read a bunch of Robert Sheckley's short stories. Cause he was just an absolute master of, uh, of the form. And other than that, just please keep up the good work. I absolutely love, I'm so psyched that there's something like this out there that it exists. All right. So I think that's a good note to end on. So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Tom Grenzer, and Zach Chapman. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Tom Grenzer, and Zach Chapman for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.